All right, I want to talk to you a little bit tonight um, about something that began to stir in my spirit on uh, Wednesday night. On Wednesday night, as I was teaching, I was having a conversation with myself as well as, I don't know if some of you noticed it, but uh, um, just things that I was becoming aware of that I wanted to process and and think through that I think are very important. And what has already happened tonight has certainly taken us down the path of what I want to talk to you about. But before we do that, I'd like us just to stand. Uh, the the non-spiritual reason is because it's always good to let the blood flow around your, your backside before you're going to sit for a while. Um, the spiritual reason is that um, I just want us to try and position ourselves in our heart. Every one of you, I, I really, I, I have no condemnation where you are in your journey or criticism or whatever. I, I, you know, whether you're that side of atheism or that side of ultra, you know, ultra um, fundamentalism, I really, the issue is I believe we have an opportunity every time we come to a moment like this to hear something that could revolutionize our lives. And sometimes we don't take that serious enough. We bypass the opportunity because we don't expect something to happen that can bring change to our lives. But the wonderful thing about life and the way we are constructed as human beings is stuff can change inside really quickly uh, when you hear a word of revelation, something that goes in your spirit. And so I want us to pray right now, Father, let that word that is so powerful that comes from you that revolutionizes and transforms lives, transform and revolutionize our lives in here tonight, in Jesus' name. All right, um, I have a title for tonight's message, which is a little controversial. Oh, please sit down. Uh, be free. Not under control. I have a title for tonight's message, which is... Um, a little controversial. Um, part of it's Danny's fault because he said, you know, if you want more hits on the website, uh, your title's got to be a certain thing. If you can't think of a good title, just put One Direction or Harry Styles in the title. So I've remembered that. So I can't think of anything to say about Harry Styles tonight. So, uh, so I, uh, I'm going to speak in One Direction when I speak. Yeah. Um, what, what I'm also about to say really is a, is a, um, it's a culmination of lots of things that are being said in this house by those who get the opportunity to communicate uh, truth. Uh, last week we had a particular moment of clarity on some things and uh, uh, what I want you to know in that is that uh, there are two things. Number one, when you say that was brilliant, that means you were rubbish every other week. So, so it's a point of depression, okay? Um, the other thing is that I just feel sometimes, and it can happen to all of us, that uh, I happen to be the centre forward scoring the goal, uh, but the play up to the scoring of the goal has had lots of contribution to it, so we just need to remember that um, this is an ongoing conversation in which tonight I, I, I just get to contribute another aspect to that. So I want to talk to you tonight about the Bible versus Jesus. It immediately will raise some thoughts in your mind. Um, do I believe the Bible? Do I accept the Bible? Uh, I'm going to let you sit on those thoughts for a while because 
Um, it's an important question, but it's one I want you just to, to go with me on a little journey. Um, there are two scriptures I want to read to you as we just pursue what it is that I want to say to you. The first one is in, is in the book of Hebrews, and it's chapter 1 and verse <clears throat> 1 through 3. Uh, this is what it says. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. So nobody's doubting that, that God has had ways and means and voices to express what he wants to say um, into humanity. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. That seems to suggest to me that the culmination of all God's conversation with humanity congregates in the one point of his Son. And so he goes on to say that that Son he appointed heir of all things... So whatever has been concluded or thought about what has gone before, even in the context of the Hebrew people and the Jewish nation, now Jesus comes on the scene and is declared to be the heir of all things. Or in other words, everything you ever thought, everything you ever believed, everything you ever expected has to, has to come to the point of being measured through and against this, this man Jesus. It says, he's appointed heir of all things through whom he made the universe. Now listen to this. The Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. Not he is some of God's glory. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is God shining on humanity. He is the radiance of God's glory. Now listen to this. And the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. If we are to believe this, then we have to acknowledge that what we are being told is that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. So he is exactly who God is. Now if we go to John chapter 14 and verse 8 through 10, we read these words. Philip said, not the same Philip we talked about last week, this is Philip the disciple, said, Lord, show us the Father. You've been talking about God as Father. You've already disturbed our thinking because we dare even speak his name, but we know him as Jehovah or Yahweh or Elohim. But now you've come along and all you ever do is call him Father, so he said, so we're not sure what to make of this. We don't know where to put this this expression of God that you're talking about. He said, so show us this Father, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So therefore, to see Jesus is to see God. So when I celebrate Jesus... In my full view of this, I find that there are many people who get really upset. Believe it or not, there are vendettas, even in this city, simply based on the fact of how I celebrate who Jesus is. Uh, and what we say about that is we bless you, we pray for you, we love you in Jesus' name. Because love wins. Now, 
To explain this, I, I love what a guy called Brian McLaren says in his book, A New Kind of Christianity. My personal view is that um, this is probably, at the moment in my life, the best thesis, and, and don't be put off by that, because it is easy to read. But I call it a thesis because it is a very complete picture in examining the whole issue of God, who God is, how we came to our viewpoint of God, where Jesus fits in all that, where we fit in all that, and what this is all about. So I had um, a choice to make tonight at this point in teaching. I could either, in my own words, explain to you what Brian McLaren says in his book, or I could just repeat what Brian McLaren says in his book and not tell you it's Brian McLaren, so you all think I'm brilliant. But I felt for righteousness sake obliged to give credit for this to Brian McLaren. So I'm going to read what, what Brian McLaren says in his book, A New Kind of Christianity. Listen to this. Just saying the name Jesus doesn't mean much until we make clear which Jesus we're talking about. We must face the fact that many different saviors can be smuggled in under the name Jesus. Just as many different deities can be disguised under the term God. Or vastly different ways of living can be promoted under the name Christianity. Jesus can be a victim of identity theft and people can say and do things with and in his name that he would never ever do. I want to propose to you that very often when I look at the image of God that I am presented with, in many ways it looks nothing like Jesus. And so my challenge to you tonight is very simple and very straightforward. I am asking you the question, does your image of God look like Jesus? In order to answer that, you would first of all have to look at Jesus, not through the eyes of Paul, not through the eyes of Peter, not through the eyes of your denomination, not through the eyes of your upbringing, but actually the Jesus who is there in the Bible, I guarantee you will be stunned because if we try to put who we think God is with who we see Jesus to be, very often that does not hang together. The image of God portrayed in the bodily form of Jesus was clearly unacceptable to the religious Jews of his day whose very religion was supposed to be based on the God of Scripture. How many of you would agree? Their Judaism was based, they believed, on the God of Scripture. They had studied the Scriptures, the Old Testament, Therefore, when Jesus came along, we had a problem because Jesus didn't look like the God that they now believed in. Hence the reason why they tried to persecute him, why they tried to one day throw him off a cliff, why they tried to have him arrested, and why ultimately they succeeded in having the Romans arrest him and have him crucified to pacify Get this, he'd broken no Roman law. He was crucified by the Romans to pacify the very people who said, he does not match our image of God. Now my question is this, is the God portrayed in Jesus, 
any more compatible with the God of the Christian church today, even though its Christianity is supposed to be based on the God of Scripture, i.e. the New Testament? Or do we find ourselves at two ends of the spectrum in the issue where actually we don't recognize Jesus as God, we recognize him as a significant player in the story about God, but we do not recognize what was told us in the book of Hebrews that he is the exact representation of God's being. So if Jesus does it, that's what God does. If Jesus doesn't do it, that's what God doesn't do. If Jesus says it, that's what God will say. If Jesus is not saying it, that's what God is not saying. So there are many issues even in the church that we have devised what we call in the church doctrine that Jesus never said a single word about. Therefore, we have to question whether that conclusion is God or whether that conclusion is our interpretation of what we think that God should be. Again, I want to quote Brian McLaren. He's getting some good coverage tonight. In his book, page 150, he says something also that I think is remarkable. Uh, let me find page 150. Oh, there we go. Hang on, I've got to go back a few pages. Forgive me. Here we go. Right, listen to this. We cannot simply say that the highest revelation of God is given through the Bible. Especially the Bible read as a constitution or cut and pasted to fit into the Greco-Roman six-line narrative. Now, very brief explanation on that because we, we will be saying much more about this. And I've already raised it and mentioned it to you. That our understanding of who a God should be is very much based on the influence in our lives of Greek and Roman thinking, Greco-Roman thinking. The philosophical side came from the Greeks, the empirical side came from the Romans. So is it any surprise that our image of God is as the supreme ruler, right? He has to be bigger, better, greater. Now why does he have to be bigger, better and greater? Is that because we want to exalt God? Or is it because according to Greek or Roman thinking that was built in a pluralistic society where there were many gods that your God had to be bigger, better, greater, stronger. He could not stand on the merits of any particular facet of who he was. As long as he was bigger than the other gods, he was better than the other gods. Now that's why John, who was the closest disciple to Jesus, when he writes his epistle at the end of his life, does not tell you God is bigger than all of the gods. He says this, you simply need to know God is love. Why does he say that? Because if the image doesn't look like Jesus, it's not the God of the Bible. It's the God of our Greco-Roman construct. Now you have to ask questions like, did the Jesus of the Bible Talk about unending, eternal, lasting punishment for the damned. That's a question for you to answer. How did Jesus talk about those outside and those inside? What did he say about many of those issues? What I challenge you with is that we have passed through our filter of Greco-Roman thinking of what we think a God should be, our examination of the God of heaven, and very often we have constructed him in order to fit that model. Let me give you another couple of little thoughts to help you with that. 
If you look at the gods, right? Not that I'm saying there are many gods, but the gods of history, the gods of nations, the gods of people, you recognize that something is very uh, consistent in all of them. The gods are angry, the gods must be appeased. If you anger the gods, you will be punished. If you please the gods, you will be rewarded. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you see the God of heaven as an angry God whose anger must be appeased? Therefore, you are going to see the cross as the means of appeasing God's answer. No, I believe in the cross. I believe the cross was something that dealt with an issue in our lives that, that to use technical terms for some of you, killed Adam while keeping the human race alive, okay? It allowed us to transition from death to life. But if you put it within the construct of Greek or Roman thinking, what Rob Bell said was right. God is angry at the sins of the world, and therefore Jesus died for the sins of the world, so Jesus died to save us from God. So we didn't need saving from our sins. We needed saving from God, because the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased. Now, there is an issue about sin in there, but I want you to see how our construct of God becomes affected. And so most of you ever raised in church, and some of you not raised in church, believe if you please the gods, the gods will be kind towards you. Now you tell me if Jesus ever did anything because people were kind to him. Or whether did Jesus did things in spite of how people treated him, in spite of what people said, in spite of the errors that had occurred in their lives, the failures that they had committed, or the weaknesses that they expressed, or the diseases that they had, did he ever respond in a way that said, if you please me, I will bless you. But if we're not careful, our construct of God is based on those things. We have to have the anger of God appeased, and we must earn the blessing of God by pleasing God. If that is your God, your God is straight from the pages of Greek mythology, from Roman theology, and from multiple other histories of religion. Our God, if he is this God of Jesus, is very different, right? So I want you to know straight away, if your God looks like Roman gods and Greek gods, except for the fact, of course, he loved us and sent his son to die for us, but actually still looks like those gods, he is not the God of the Bible. Is the God of our Greek or Roman thinking. So, rather we can say that for Christians, the Bible's highest value is in revealing Jesus, who gives us the highest, deepest, and most mature view of the character of the living God. Several passages of the New Testament affirm this very thing. In the book of Colossians, for example, we do not read... The Bible is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Bible, and through the Bible to reconcile to himself all things. Instead, we read, the Son is the image of the invisible God, for God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now I want you to understand, as McLaren has just previously said, this is not that the Bible is without purpose, but it means that the Bible's highest calling is to reveal to us Jesus. 
Similarly, in Hebrews 1, which we read, we do not read, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the Jewish prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us through the Christian apostles. Their writings are the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. No, we read, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Nor do we read in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became the Scriptures and was published among us. The Bible is the light of the world, and the way, the truth, and the life. If you have understood the Bible, you have seen the Father. The Bible and the Father are one. Is that what we read? Instead, we read that the Word was made flesh in Jesus, that Jesus is the light, the way, the truth, and the life, that Jesus and the Father are one. In fact, Jesus says you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. But these are the very Scriptures that testify about me. This is not anti-Bible, this is a seek to re- seeking to redress the balance to point us back to what the Bible was always supposed to do, which was to point us to Jesus, because you do not know God by reading the Bible, you know God by seeing Jesus. The problem is, what you see in the Bible is going to change when you allow Jesus to be the exact representation of the being of God, because there's some interpretations you have that cannot possibly be true, otherwise Jesus is a liar and a fraud. When I'm trying to communicate in front of a Christian group, he says, what it means to see the ultimate revelation of God, not in the Bible, but in Jesus, right? Again, we're not discrediting the Bible, have you got that? But the ultimate revelation of God is found in Jesus. McLaren says, and this is his illustration, I often use a copy of the Bible to illustrate. To begin, I say that the first half of the Bible will represent the Old Testament scriptures, okay? The second half will represent the New Testament. So we've got got Old Testament, New Testament, okay? Uh, And the spine, this bit here, represents Jesus, okay? Now here's the problem. This is Jesus presented to us in the four Gospels, the Old Testament here, the New Testament here. If we put this flat, we have a flat reading of the Bible. And in this approach, Jesus is simply in the middle of the book. And for most people, actually, if we're honest, Jesus is simply in the middle of the book. Our attention is on what we learn in the Old Testament and what we're taught in the New Testament, and Jesus is just a convenience in the middle of the book. So he is not actually, to most people, the very representation of who God is. We find who God is by reading this and reading this, with Jesus just in the middle of convenience, okay? But in this approach, Jesus is simply in the middle of the book, flesh-made words on a par with all the other words. Simply the source of a few more articles in an inspired constitution. Now, I'm going to shock you with one little thing, that when there's an argument about doctrine, often Jesus doesn't win. 
Because we find ways in other scriptures to cast the first stone without being a sinner. We find ways to reject people and put people out and exclude them and excommunicate them. Why? Because Jesus is not the center of our belief and understanding. Now, let's do something here. If we elevate the first part of the Bible like that, is that okay? Can you see that? That's the Old Testament. The book, the open book slants downwards, okay? So it's going downwards. Here the Hebrew scriptures are the summit, right? This is the summit. Describing the problem which Jesus and the New Testament are meant to solve or creating the boundary conditions in which they must work. So this reading favors the law and the Ten Commandments. So if I do that, everything is based on the law and the Ten Commandments. So Jesus just fits in with that understanding. Now, if I elevate this half of the book, the New Testament, the open book slants upward, showing a progressive revelation that passes through Jesus to find its summit in the writers of the New Testament, Paul and perhaps John and the apostles in Revelation as well. This reading favors the epistles, so therefore all my interpretation of this is going to come from reading Paul's writings and Peter's writings and the epistles, okay? So somehow Jesus is a bit player. Can you see that? He's just become a bit player. He's the one who solves the problem we discovered here, right? And he's the one who here is, is we're talking about, but then the focus comes on other things like eternal life and heaven, okay? But finally, what happens if we angle both covers downwards? So that the summit, the top of it is an inverted V. This, I suggest, can represent seeing Christ as the hinge of the biblical story, the spine or backbone of the narrative, the climax and focal point towards which the Old Testament points and ascends, and the peak from which the vigor and vitality of the New Testament flow, so it ascends and flows, but with Jesus at the peak, this is how Jesus can be seen for Christians as the supreme and ultimate revelation of God with the Old and New Testament pointing to him like dual spotlights. Now, the character of God seen in Jesus is not violent and not tribal. Now, just by that one statement, I have created a problem. Because most people's understanding of God is first tribal and it's violent. So we find ourselves bound in things which are actually not in the Bible. If any of you have been around in church for a long time, you, some of you have been raised like me and you heard phrases like the fall. That phrase is never in the Bible. But it is at the root of the next belief of Christianity, which is, uh, what's the other Yeah, original sin, okay? The fall, original sin, Christ comes to deal with that, and then you have heaven for eternity, or hell for eternity. But you see, right at the root, the fall and original sin, and eternal conscious punishment are actually never mentioned in the Bible. So we already have a problem because accepted conclusions within our understanding of how God works are not actually in the very book that we say we believe in and we get them from and do not reflect in all integrity the one who said, I am the image of the invisible God. Jesus is wonderful. But here's what happens. The problem is that in Jesus we see a very ungodlike God. 
Jesus doesn't look like any Greek or Roman God. Because Greek or Roman gods don't forgive their enemies. They don't pray for those who despitefully use them. They don't show kindness to the unworthy. They don't heal the sick. They don't touch the leper. They don't forgive. They don't refuse to reward according to your sins and iniquities. Everything is done according to a criteria which so much looks like the God that many of us were introduced to. But when you see God in the form of Jesus, you see he is very ungodlike in the way that we've ever understood a God to be. Now here's the problem, because Jesus is so ungodlike, we run over Jesus in the narrative at the spine because he's so ungodlike, we can't get our understanding to grab that this would ever be what God is like. So then we have to take within the scriptures and construct a God that looks more like the Greek or Roman model with which we are more comfortable. And so then our gospel reflects that Greek or Roman Roman model. God is angry with you. If you don't make God happy, you can't be forgiven. And God has made some very specific, clear ways that if you do not exactly do it according to the way he has set, then he can't possibly make room for you to come in. He may be love, but if you just get one aspect of that wrong, you can't come in. You've got to keep the rules. You've got to do it right. You've got to appease the gods. You've got to make the gods happy. Jesus doesn't look like that. Therefore, I propose to you, if Jesus doesn't look like that, the God I'm talking about, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, actually doesn't look like that. But you see, by the time the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had passed through a society in the Jewish culture who had looked at all those other disciplines and other gods, by the time we reached Jesus, the expression of the very God who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they can't see that Jesus looks anything like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's because their God didn't look anything like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we oppose with this massive challenge. Are we prepared to allow our image of God to come back to the spine. Listen, I study this book, I love this book. This is my, this is my textbook from which I teach and understand. But, but, but when Jesus becomes the spine, this book ain't saying some things that I was told it said. And it's saying some things that some people said it isn't saying. And so some people will say, don't read Love Wins, don't listen, listen to Rob Bell. That God does not look like the God that we know. No, because Jesus didn't look like any God that they knew. Jesus was the most ungodlike God you could ever imagine. I invite you tonight to reject the God who looks like those other gods. And I invite you to embrace the ungodlike God who's called Jesus, who is the exact representative of the Father in heaven and is the God who I want you to meet so passionately with all of my heart. See, according to our existing models, Jesus is everything a God should not be. He chooses the younger over the elder to inherit, the one who had no chance of inheriting. He, he chooses the last to become first. He chooses the weak to become strong. He chooses the condemned to be set free. He chooses the excluded to be included. He chooses the outsider to be the insider. He chooses the lawbreaker to be accepted. 
You look at Jesus' record with his disciples, with the people he dealt with, and you will find there is a graciousness there that you will not find anywhere in any Greek or Roman model of a God because Jesus is so ungodlike it's unbelievable. And yet you've got to believe it because this is the truth. Here's the other evidence on that. This one, who is everything a God should not be, was rejected, not accepted, right? He was despised, not loved. He was eliminated, not assimilated. And so you have a problem. If I take a little expansive liberty with the verse of the Bible in Galatians 3, verse 28, and I do acknowledge I'm taking a little expansive liberty, but I haven't time to say why I'm putting this liberty in there, but the God we see in Jesus is not the Jewish God or the Greek God. He's neither. He's not the Jewish God or the Greek God. He's not the slave's God or the free person's God. Some of you know the God of slavery in America was not the same God as slave owners in Britain. Because they said, deliver us, we've got to find light and hope because you love us, free us from this. The slaves were saying, God, we're doing your work by ensuring that those who do not deserve to be better than this are actually at least given an opportunity to be slaves, thinking they did them a favor. So the God we see in Jesus is not the Jewish God or the Greek God. He's not the slave's God or the free man's God. And he's not the male God or the female God. He's not like Diana of the Ephesians or like Zeus of the Greeks. Here's what the Bible says. He's a stumbling block to those who want the Jewish God model. His foolishness personified to those who want the Greek model. From either of those angles, it is ridiculous to suggest that God looks exactly like Jesus. You cannot, coming from those models, conclude that Jesus looks exactly like, or God looks exactly like Jesus. So we have to jump through hoops explaining the parables and the statements of Jesus to make them fit our Greek or Roman perception of God. But let Jesus be Jesus. Let his words be his words. Let them revolutionize your life. Come to the ungodlike God. Come to the one who was the most unlikely God you could ever imagine, but actually is the creator of the universe, who all things came from him and has the power to change everything. Because here's the verse that comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 25 in the New King James. It says, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who were called, and hear that call, both Jews and Greeks, don't matter where you came from, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I put it to you that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Now when you follow the other model, Jesus brings the wisdom of God. But that's not what the Bible says. It says that he is the wisdom of God. He's the brilliant idea of a God who is not like any other God to show you what he's really like, to come down, let you touch him, feel him, heal him, watch him do what he does and say, now that's what God is like. If you're the woman caught in the act of adultery, how wonderful to know that's what God is like. How wonderful if you're the leper and nobody will touch you that that's what God is like. How wonderful if you're cheating, conniving, bullying, snake of a person called Zacchaeus 
working for the enemy, who Jesus said, Zacchaeus, get out of that tree. I've seen you. I know where you are. I'm coming to your house to have my tea tonight. And today, the kingdom came to your house. Which kind of God do you want? Sadly, when we find ourselves in situations of need in our lives, which we all do, particularly in areas of failure and disappointment, often what we meet in others who are claimed to be pursuers of God and the gospel is the Greek or Roman God. The woman caught in adultery doesn't let, get let go free. Zacchaeus doesn't get called out of the tree. The leper doesn't get touched. The outsider doesn't get invited in. But we become that divisive, cruel, separatist, tribal God. I don't ever want this place to be tribal. I don't want ever to feel that it's an angry God who is tribal. This is the God who in Jesus is represented to us. And so I want to seem to go another direction, but I'm not, because I want to go this way just to finish it for you. Because one thing about this is when we have Jesus as the spine, the truth is, and we, we look at everything through Jesus, we begin to see the purpose of God for humanity. And so I want to slide all the way back down on this side. No, that side. This side. I want to slide down this side, all the way back to the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible to show you something what I think is very remarkable. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So mankind, it's not just the male, mankind created in the image of God. That's fascinating to think that as we fail to embrace who we were always meant to be, made in the image of God himself, that we have to come all the way to Jesus to get a restoration to the ideals that we have left to say, no, look, you've missed this somewhere along the line, but I want you to see that Jesus is the exact representation of my being, or in other words, he's in the image of God, and when you've seen him, You've seen the Father. Do you know what's supposed to happen when you have a relationship with the Father through Jesus in this way, that when people see you, they've seen the Father? And I'm going to show you how that works in just a moment. So God creates man in the beginning in his image. That's the image of God. And then we jump to chapter 2. And it says these words in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Okay, so this, this is a story. This is about the right at the pinnacle of creation here. Now, again, whether you think this is symbolic or actual really doesn't matter for the point that I want to make. I, I personally believe it's actual, okay? This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now listen to verse 5. No shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now, so, we're having the earth described to us. No shrub, no plant. So I want you to picture it. The earth's been created, but there's no shrubs, there's no plants, there's no greenery, there's nothing. 
We have a word for that, it's called barren. So we have an image here of a barren earth, unproductive, unfruitful. And then we go to verse seven, and it says, and the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, listen to this, and there he put the man that he had formed. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So here's my question. Where was the man created? What was his experience of the earth, of the world? If you have to take someone and put them somewhere, does that not mean that they were not where you put them before you took them and put them there? So if God planted a garden in the east in Eden, that means the whole earth was not the garden and the garden was not the whole earth. What was it like outside the garden? Barren, no plants, no shrubs, no productivity, no fruitfulness. So man's first experience is barrenness, no productivity, no fruitfulness, but God takes this man and he puts him into the garden that he has made to work it and to take care of it. Now what was God's purpose? God's purpose was this, okay Adam, I want you to see this barrenness, this fruitlessness, this hopelessness, this helplessness, this wilderness, and I want you to see this garden. Now, who made the garden? God made the garden. Whose image was Adam made in? God's image. So within Adam, there was the power to take what he had in the garden into the earth. So Adam was commissioned to reproduce the fruitfulness of the garden in the barrenness of the earth. In other words, right in the beginning, the image of God in Adam empowered him to change the desert into a garden. It empowered him to change unfruitfulness to fruitfulness, barrenness to wholeness, death to life, because that's what happens when the image of God is in you, when you're made in his image. Now the problem is, of course, we messed that up. We departed from that image. We decided we wanted to construct God in other ways, and we decided that we wanted to define ourselves by our own righteousness, and that's where it all went wrong. So along comes God in Jesus after these thousands of years of narrative and said, okay, you ought to have seen by now that you are never gonna be able to define yourself by your own righteousness to come back to the image of God and change barrenness to fruitfulness. So here's the deal. In Jesus, I'm gonna declare you righteous. I'm gonna put you right back to the beginning. I'm gonna give you a fresh start. I'm gonna take all the responsibility off you because now it's not man who's made in the image of God. It's Jesus who is the exact representation of God himself and Jesus invites us to attach ourselves to him so that when we are one with him, we become as he is in the presence of God. So when you've seen the Father, you've seen me. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so that brings us to this point that taking that image and purpose to heart, if we are in God's image and fully reconciled to that image of God in Christ, then this is what God says, I am in you, and if you allow the me in you 
to reflect me through you, you will do what I have done. There is hope in here tonight to change a barren world to a fruitful life, a barren life to a fruitful life, a barren heart to a fruitful heart because the image of God that came in Jesus was always meant to come back into you as it was in the beginning so that as you started in a desert and you just catch a glimpse of that garden, you're able to take that garden and transform your world and all because we got Jesus at the pinnacle of the narrative and said Jesus is God and God is Jesus. God is not that construct that I have seen of Old and New Testament religion, law and message. Jesus is the pinnacle of all that. They simply serve that message and when I see Jesus, I see God and I see a loving, gracious, kind, forgiving, accepting, accommodating, healing, delivering, forgiving God who comes into our world. And I cannot for the life of me reconcile the image of a God who is just waiting to slam a door shut and say, right, all you billions, sorry, it's hell for you. And you few that said the right words and fulfilled the right requirements, you can spend time in delight with me while they all suffer. You may disagree with me, you are entitled to do so. I'm not mad at you for it. I hope you still love me whether we agree or not. But what I do ask you to do is say, when you see the image of Jesus, do you see the reflection of that in the manifested revelation of God in his son. I want to draw you back to Jesus. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is wonderful. He's not like the queen's head on a coin that has just been given you to say this validates the coin. He's more than that. He is God incarnate revealed to you and that's why Jesus said, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. If you want to come to the Father, come through me. If you want to see who God is, come to me. Let's exalt Jesus back to the pinnacle of what we call the Christian gospel so that we can allow the God of the Bible, the Father of Jesus, to empower us to transform our desert places, which is the hope for you tonight. If you receive it, the image of God is in you. You can change it when you receive it. Amen. Stand with me. <laughs> Get done. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for your brilliance, your intelligence. Thank you that you have the wisdom that was greater than the Greeks ever imagined and that you had ability beyond anything the Romans could ever dream and that also you have a graciousness the likes of which even the Jewish nation could not accept when you came in the form of Jesus and wanted to crucify you. But Lord, we realize we're not pointing the finger at them because we've all been guilty of taking this Jesus and crucifying him because we prefer the Greek or Roman version of God that we can grasp and get our head around as a God. But tonight we submit to the ungodlike God, to the unlikely God, to the one of whom when we look at you, it's ridiculous that we should even think you are a God because you don't look anything like those gods. But we submit ourselves to say, this is the real God. This is who God always was and always will be and is supreme above all. We honor you tonight and we thank you for Jesus, for his coming, but for the fact that now he lives in us 
and that the image of the Father is still implanted and imprinted in our lives. I pray freedom over everyone tonight, Father, in the name of Jesus. Let that spirit that God put inside of you because of Jesus, let it free. I think that becoming a, what we might term a Christian is an agreement with that spirit that God put inside of you, that spirit that says, you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're loved, it's already done. It's the agreement that says, wow, well, if that's the case, I guess that's fine by me. If you've never done that, do that in your heart tonight. Meet this Jesus of the Bible. And in meeting this Jesus of the Bible, you will meet a God that you never imagined could be that good and that amazing and that wonderful. I pray that be in our hearts tonight, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you've been very patient and wonderful. And I bless you, and stay behind, and if you've got any questions, ask Chris.